This series is History That Matters. History That Matters. It is so important. The Bible says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Um, When most people get their news from mainline media sources and political correctness has determined that, that there are certain words that you can't use or certain ideas that you can't express, well, then people honestly never hear the truth. And because of that, we're, for that reason, we're going through this series, so many different topics. This morning's topic is Islam and the Crusades, the history of modern terrorism. Now, before we get into that, I want you to understand the position of the mainstream media on Israel. They are not the friends of Israel. And so we have a video here that I want you to see. Any comments on Israel? We're arresting everybody today. Any comments Tell on Israel? Tell out of Palestine. Ooh. <laughs> Any better comments? <laughs> Remember, these people are occupied. And it's their land. Not German, it's not Poland. So where should they go? What should they do? They go home. Where's the home? Poland. So the Jews, Germany. The, the Jews go back to Poland and Germany. And, and America and everywhere else. All right, that was Helen Thomas. Helen Thomas sat on the front row of press briefings for probably 50 years in the White House. Um, and she is, she, you know, they, there were schools of journalism named after Helen Thomas. She was finally fired because of all the fervor that came, all of the response that came from these statements. But that's not the first time she's made those statements. It's only because you have the Internet now and cable news outlets, uh, blogs, and all of those things. That's the only reason the information even got out. You see, these people could get away with these things before we had these, these other outlets for information. That's the position of most of the media that Israel does not have the right to exist as a nation, that they are occupiers. And notice what she said. Tell them to go home. Well, where's home? Poland and Germany. Uh, Can I ask you all a question? What was in Poland and Germany when they left? Death camps. Death camps. Now, praise God, there's not death camps there now. Amen? Um, This is not an indictment against the German people or against the Polish people. But the simple fact is, there were death camps in Germany and death camps in Poland. And that's where she's telling them to go back. And notice, as an afterthought, she said, and America. That's the position. But, so let's answer that question. Uh, many people believe that the root of modern terrorism is the existence of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine. First of all, the land of Palestine, it was never called Palestine. There was the Bakaba uprising around 132 to 134 in the land of Israel. And Hadrian, the Roman emperor, had finally had enough. Remember, they had destroyed, they had destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem under Emperor Tite, under the Roman general Titus in AD 70. So here we are, about 60 years later, there is an uprising and the Jewish people gain control of that part of the world again for about three years. And Hadrian went in and wiped them out. He said they will no longer be a people. And he named the land, the name of their enemy, the Philistines, as a sign of 
reproach to the Jews, as an affront to the Jews, because he was just tired of them. He was mad at them. Now, understand, the Jews were never able to be suppressed by Rome. They were conquered, but they never received the Roman religion. They never received the Roman laws. They never submitted to the Roman customs. They maintained their national identity, and so Rome didn't like them. And, of course, at that time, by 130, Christianity is spreading the globe. And to to Rome, Christianity was simply a sect of the Jews. So they named, Hadrian named that land Palestine or Palestina after the Philistines. So it's not Palestine, it's Israel. Amen? And so that's where she is getting it wrong. Another thing is, well, Helen Thomas is from Lebanon. Her family's from Lebanon. Why doesn't she go back to Lebanon? Why didn't my family go back to Ireland or Germany? It'd be hard. I'd have to be cut in half. Some of me would go to Ireland. Some of me would go to Germany. You know, how many of you, your ancestors are for some place other than America? All of us. So the idea of that is it's silly. And then the idea that the Israelis are occupiers, that the Jews are occupiers, simply flies in the face of history. And again, it shows you these people that are on the news are often just dolts. Um, I like to watch Jeopardy. Anyone here like to watch Jeopardy? You know, have, you, have I told you the difference between Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune? You know, somebody goes on Jeopardy and this is, this is Bob and he studies astrophysics and all this and then go on Wheel of Fortune. This is Susie and she's fascinated by bright, shiny objects. That's, that's the difference. But when you're watching Jeopardy, they'll have... Now, if you like Wheel of Fortune, enjoy it. It's great. It's fun. They'll have the Celebrity Jeopardy. And it's so funny when these news people go on Celebrity Jeopardy, most of them are as dumb as a bag of hair. They don't know anything. And yet these are the people that so smugly talk down to you and me. Uh, Helen Thomas simply does not know her history. She does not know her history from 1250 B.C. to 586 B.C. The land was controlled by the Jews. That is 664 years. From 539 B.C. to 70 A.D., 609 years, the land was controlled by the Jews. From 132 to 135, the land was controlled by the Jews. That's a total of 1,275 years. The total of Arab rule, the total of Arab rule in the area of Jerusalem was from 637 to 870 under the Ottoman Empire. That's 233 years. So 233 years versus uh, 1,275 years. Which one's more? So Helen Thomas was completely mistaken. But that is the position. Understand that until, oh, maybe five years ago, the United Nations had a list of, of nations that were allowed to participate. Every nation in the world was listed except Israel. They didn't even acknowledge them as a nation. It was only in the last few years that the Vatican, in trying to open up relations with Israel, even recognized them as a nation. So Israel, this is the position of the world that Israel is the usurper. Israel is the occupier when nothing could be farther from the truth. The other thing is, 
When Israel became a nation in 1948, again, a nation that was not a nation became a nation, the first time that's ever happened in history where people who had been decimated were reunited and established a nation again in fulfillment of many biblical prophecies, that is not the first time that Jews had come back into the land. What is called modern Zionism began at the end of the 1800s, but Thomas Jefferson was a Zionist. He believed that the Jews should be allowed to live in the land. Abraham Lincoln was a Zionist. Charles Spurgeon was a Zionist. Many of these people, even Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, was a Zionist, believed the Jews should be able to live in the land. And the simple fact is that ever since the diaspora, 8070, when they were scattered, the Jews have always lived in the land. They've never been gone from it. They've always lived in it. They didn't have a nation, but they've lived there. So oh, these arguments are just spurious. They're baseless in history, and they demonstrate the fact that the one thing we learn from history is that Americans don't learn anything from history. We need to know where we're coming from. Amen? That'll tell us where we're going. So what about this concept of modern terrorism? Modern terrorism. Um, the reason for both Islamic terrorism and the horror of the Crusades. All right. Now, you understand that Osama bin Laden blames... He calls America crusaders. That's the terminology that they use for us. We are crusaders. Well, it's not really a religious war for America, but that's the terminology that they're using. So why do they do that? Well, it goes back to the, to the Catholic crusades that took place, and we're going to look at that. But has that been the historic position of Islam? We're going to discover that. But what we had was we had an occupying force called the Roman Catholic Church that marched on the Holy Land and the area in between during the Crusades. How many of you have heard of the Crusades? Right? And then over here you have, the, the, you have Islam. Islam, uh, which as a, a specific named religion, dates back to the early 600s. So you have this group of people that believe in conquering by force. And you have this group of people who believe in conquering by force or converting. The only way you can conquer is by force. But who believe in converting by force. The Crusades, convert by force. Islam, convert by force. Both of those positions, both of those groups start from a clearly unbiblical position. So let's look at it and try and figure out. Both of these groups... They deny something called individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. Look at Romans 14.5. All right, here's what we have. Our, this is our kind of our uh, graph that we have been using. This is our, our, our image that we've been using for this whole series. There are two lines of history. There's a true line that goes back to Christ and the apostles, comes through the city of Antioch, down through the, the Montanists and the Novatians and the Waldensians and the Albigensians and the, these different groups of people, the Swiss Anabaptists and then the Baptists. It comes down through here. After the Reformation, there's a group of time where the Protestant, those who came out of the Catholic Church through the Protestant Reformation, and then their offspring, such as the Methodists, Nazarenes, Pentecostals, they agreed. Then there came a time when many of those are heading back into this system. 
Well, this line believes in a doctrine and always has, going all the way back, we have documents from the Novatians, the Montanists, the Donatists, early Christians, and they believe in something that's called individual soul liberty. This line does not believe in individual soul liberty. Beginning with Augustine and his famous work, The City of God, under the authority of Constantine, the, the emperor, and then Damasus, the bishop of Rome, they started imposing belief with the sword all through this line of history. Now, some of these who came out of the Catholic Church through Pro the Protestant Reformation, they also believed in enforcing belief with the sword and would kill people who disagreed with them. I want to show you the scriptural reasons why this line held to something called individual soul liberty. So let's look at it. Romans 14, 5. The Bible says, well, let's start with verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. I used to quote that verse to Mark, to Mark Flowers. <laughs> Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Now, remember what the Bible says, that there's going to come a time. Let me find the text. It's 1 Timothy. First uh, Timothy chapter 4. Turn, keep your place in Romans, but go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times... Now. Now, we talked about this Wednesday night. We're doing a study on Wednesday nights at 7 uh, called What the Bible Says About Prophecy. And when you see the term the last days or the latter times in the Bible, that's the time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ until he returns. So that's the latter times. That's the last days. So the Bible says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So there are seducing spirits. These are These are... Not godly. These are things that are going to seduce people away from the truth. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, so the Apostle Paul, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, identifies uh, specific characteristics, specific doctrines that are identified as doctrines of devils. All right, so let's read them. Speaking, verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here are the things that are going to be doctrines of devils. Forbidding to marry. The Bible says, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Amen. Amen. So forbidding to marry is a doctrine of devils and seducing spirits. Am I making it up or is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? All right. Then it says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So there are some religions that are going to forbid the eating of meat. That is something that's identified as a doctrine of devils, as a seducing spirit. Well, those things were already taking place when the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Romans. So some people have been influenced by these ideas of, you know, you can't eat. And now later on, we're going to see some people can uh, where 
arguing about whether to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Well, you know, when you're starving, you have meat that's been offered to an idol, they're going to throw it away. People would take that meat and eat it. It's just meat. You know, it's like, what do you get when you baptize a baby? A wet baby. It, it doesn't change anything. The idea of, of offering meat to an idol, it doesn't all of a sudden make that meat demon-possessed. We're going to see that one of the influences of Eastern religion that we have in our day is this idea of talismans. You know, you're afraid to bring something into your home because that will bring Satan into your home. You don't have to worry about that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. We don't have to worry about that stuff. So what's happening here at this time, some people have been told you're not supposed to eat meat. All right. Some people are only going to eat herbs. And notice what it says. Another who is what? Weak. Now, there's two reasons for that. You don't eat meat, you're going to be weak. Right? That's why the clothes and, you know, you go out to California and you go to, you know, Beverly Hills and you try on clothes and they're all made for frail men. You know, a real man, there's no way. I promise you, none of you beef eaters are going to fit into the clothes that they have there. Amen. Amen. So now... They're weak. Now look at verse 3. Let him that eateth despise not him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest, judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth, or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Here's the idea. I, there's no way that I can make Doug agree with me on something. I can't make him agree. I can persuade him to my side using my vastly superior intellect, Doug, I mean... <laughs> I can persuade him to my side, but I can't make him. He is really stubborn. Anybody know any Schmidt-Meyers? Really stubborn. <laughs> I can't make him do... I can't force him to believe something. So the Bible says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What we are supposed to submit to are the clear teachings of the Word of God. External things, let's not argue about those. Let's be clear on what the Bible says. And even then, I can't make you believe anything. I can just tell you what the Bible says. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That is the concept of individual soul liberty. Look with me at Romans. Um, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Let's just skip on. 2 Corinthians 4.2. Why do people kill people in the name of religion? You know, there's a lot of people that are turning away from God completely because of what's been done in the name of Christ or what's been done in the name of religion. Um, Christopher Hitchens, the, the popular atheist, he's going around debating Christians. And one of his major tools is all the evil that's been done in the name of religion. Now, many of you know evil has been done in the name of religion. That's the topic of what, that's our topic today. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah, it has been. All right, look at 2 Corinthians 4.2. The Bible says, um, look, look at verse 1 for context. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What are we doing? When I preach the word of God, I can't deceive people. I can't trick people into believing. What I have to do is make the word of God plain. I've got to give it the truth. And then I'm commending myself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Um, someone, People often ask me, why don't we do this at the church? I'll give you an example. Um, sometimes people want to know why we don't bring in a lot of uh, singing groups to, to Grace Baptist Church. Well, just it, it, some of these things would violate my conscience. It would be very difficult for me to bring in a group of people who claim to believe the truth and then... They, the next week or the next night, they're at, they're at a church worshiping with people who practice false doctrine. Amen? So I, I can't do that. And then these same people, they're never in church. They're never under the preaching of the Word of God. They're never using their gifts to serve God in, their, in the local church. It just violates my conscience. To, just something doesn't sit right with me in doing that. Now, I know some, some groups that they are ministering in their local churches. They do love God. They do only go to churches that have right doctrine. I'd be glad to have one of those groups. You know what I mean? That's fine. I'm not against singing groups. But that's something that violates my conscience. That's what this is talking about. We don't want to do things that violate our conscience, and I can't require you to do something that violates your conscience. That's the idea of individual soul liberty. Um, look at Titus 1.9. Titus. What I'm teaching you right now, this principle of individual soul liberty, is the foundation for religious liberty in America. I don't have time to go into it, but this is the basis for our religious liberty in the United States of America. This teaching right now, individual soul liberty, very important. Okay, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Now, this is, going to give, this is giving the qualifications of a pastor. Now, look at verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So when I have someone that's speaking against the word of God, I'm not supposed to attack them physically. Amen? And I'm really thankful for that because most people could beat me up. What I'm supposed to do is I am supposed to, through sound doctrine, exhort, that's challenge them to believe, and convince them. Here, let me show you why you're wrong. Let me show you what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what Baptists believe or Catholics or Presbyterians or Mormons. It does, none of that matters. What does the Bible say? What, what has God said? So let's set aside our differences. Let's set all that stuff aside and let's see what God has said. Amen? So what is that? That's through sound doctrine, convincing the gainsayers. I'm not going to pull out a gun or a sword and require people to believe. Now, how many of you, it would seem really weird if I did that anyway? That's because you live in America. 
You think it would be weird in Saudi Arabia? Um, the Saudi prince gave $10 million, a $10 million endowment to Harvard and Princeton. I believe Harvard and Princeton. Maybe George Washington University. To establish a school of Islamic studies. Because they want Americans to understand Islam. Now, personally, I don't have a problem with that. You know, if a Christian wants to understand Islam and wants to study that, that's fine. You know, the Apostle Paul really understood the religions of the people around him. Amen? So I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But a reporter, I've got a copy of the, of the newspaper article. The, a reporter asked the prince, are you going to start, are you going to establish a school of Christian studies in Saudi Arabia? Oh, no. No. Why not? Well, you must understand, there are no Christians in Saudi Arabia. Would anyone dare to venture a guess as to why? They will kill you. So you see, we need to understand them. They need to kill us. Interesting, right? So this idea, when I'm talking about individual soul liberty and that I would not pull out a gun or a sword and require you to believe my way, I ask you if that would seem strange. Yes, that's because you live in a country established on the concept of individual soul liberty. Don't miss that. That's the foundation for what we're talking about today. We're going to look at two different groups who do not believe that. All right? So now... Let me just read a couple of things to you, and then we'll move on. Jeremiah Jeter, not Derek Jeter. <laughs> Jeremiah Jeter, Baptist preacher in Virginia in the 1800s. He wrote, The liberty to worship God according to the dictates of conscience is the dearest of all human rights. That's awesome. That it should ever have been denied is one of the strongest proofs of human fallibility. According to Baptist views, no man can become a church member who does not voluntarily accept Christ as his master, who does not willingly receive baptism and attestation of his submission. Moreover, having freely become a member, he cannot retain his place in the church unless his life is in harmony with his profession. So you've got to live like a Christian to stay a member. Imagine that. In short... Faith and baptism are essential prerequisites to church membership. And that's, that's what we believe. Now, if, you're, if you are here and you're from a, a church that has a different form of church government, this might be new to you. To be a member at Grace Baptist Church, you have to first be born again. And when we talk about being born again, what we're saying is that you realize, according to the Word of God, the Bible says in Romans 3.10, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark. All of us are sinners. Romans 6.23 says the penalty for that sin is death in hell forever. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can have eternal life, but it's only received as a gift. You can't earn it. What you get for what you do, the wages of sin, it's death. But you receive that free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ is offering you. How do you get that free gift? Well, number one, by acknowledging that you're a sinner and that your sin 
has violated the righteousness of a holy God. And because of that sin, you deserve to go to a Christless hell, a place of literal, eternal fire, apart from God forever. That is where all of us deserve to go. How could a loving God do that? No, you're asking the wrong question. Why would a righteous God save any of us? That's the right question. All of us deserve to go to a Christless hell forever. But, Romans 5, 8, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was born of a virgin. The very God, God Himself, was born of a virgin, lived a completely perfect and sinless life, then was beaten. He was pierced, crucified on a cross. He was stabbed in the side with a spear. Blood and water gushed out. He was put and buried in a borrowed tomb, was there for three days and three nights. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he was and is and always will be God. Well, if you believe that, and you go to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died for my sin. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I only deserve hell. You are Lord. Forgive me for my sin and take me to heaven when I die. I want to receive that free gift of eternal life. I know that my baptism won't save me, my good works won't save me, my family won't save me, my religion won't save me. Lord Jesus, only you can save me. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born again. It's not something that happens over a period of time where you slowly begin to believe and God starts working in you. No, it's a transaction. It happens at a point in time. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was spiritually dead, now I've been, the biblical word is quickened, made alive, spiritually alive so I can worship God. That's something that happens in a point in time. Have you had that point in time? I hope that you have. To be a member here at Grace Baptist Church, you have to have made that transaction where Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, and then you make testimony of that. You tell people about that. You demonstrate that by going into the baptistry. It's water that comes up to about here, and you're baptized. You're buried and buried in the likeness of Christ's death, raised to walk in newness of life. That's what it says in Romans chapter 6. That baptism identifies you with Jesus Christ and with this local church. So every member at Grace Baptist Church has to have been born again, And they have to have had a testimony of that, made testimony of that, by being baptized by immersion, either here or in a church that believes just like we do. That's how a person becomes a member here. So, let me read what Jeter says. In short, faith and baptism are essential prerequisites to church membership. And a godly life is necessary to the continuance of the connection. If these principles are maintained... Neither birth, nor baptism, nor education, nor wealth, nor office, nor profession can secure a place in a Baptist church. Nor can one retain his place in it without imbibing the spirit and imitating the example of the Redeemer. It is obvious that a church organized on these principles cannot be a persecuting body. You get that? It is not possible for a church that believes like this to be a persecuting body. For what purpose could it persecute? 
not to force members to join it, for none can be admitted to its membership without qualifications which no persecution can secure, not to keep members within it, for it can retain only such as love its members, doctrine, ordinances. Now, ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And discipline and force cannot produce these fruits. The conquests of such a church must be made not by the sword of the executioner, but by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Other churches may employ carnal weapons, those are fleshly weapons, and inflict pains and penalties to promote their prosperity. But Baptist churches, if they flourish, must succeed by moral suasion and the grace of God. Amen? Amen? That's what we believe. That's what, now don't miss this, that's what has been believed, I almost fell off the platform, that's what has been believed all the way back to the early church. You can't force somebody to believe. All right? So what about the Crusades? What about the Crusades? Now, let me say this. The Crusades, when you look at most church histories, I got several of them here, and I thought we'd just read through all of them today. What do you think? (laughs) Nothing better than reading church history out loud. It's more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. But I want you to see, this is the book that I had when I was in Bible college, uh, Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Cairns. Uh, let me tell you who he is. He's a graduate of Presbyterian Theological Seminary, Omaha, and the University of Nebraska. He's a member of the American Society of Church History, the American Historical Association, and the Conference of Faith and History. Dr. Cairns was professor of history at Wheaton College from 1943 until his emeritation in 1977. I'm not sure what emeritation is, but it sounds painful. Okay, now, so this is the book that I was taught church history out of. And to be honest, I didn't really pay attention in class, so it didn't hurt me. Um, Let me read to you what he says about the Crusades. This is the position of most of Christianity. When, When someone says Islam is only behaving in reaction to what Christianity or what Christians did to them. How many of you have ever heard that? And then here's the general response. Well, no, no, they have that wrong. What, what the, the church was doing was simply defending themselves against the attacks of Islam. How many of you have heard that? Okay. Now, let me read to you what, um, what uh, Cairns says. One should remember the causes of the Crusades. One should remember that although the Crusaders had economic or political interests, the primary motive for the Crusades was religious. Let me give you an example. He identifies Bernard of Clairvaux as one of um, the Crusaders. And he says this, The occasion for the Second Crusade was the Muslim threat to the northeastern flank of the kingdom of Jerusalem after the Muslims had captured the feudal fief of Edessa. In 1146, the saintly mystic Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Second Crusade. Now, I am preaching. This isn't really preaching. This is teaching. Preaching is when I go through a text of the Scriptures. We've been preaching a minute ago. Now we're talking about history. But when I preach, do we gather up an army and make sure their swords are really sharp? He preached the crusade. How do you preach a crusade? You say, well, Billy Graham preached a crusade. 
I think it was different. Now, it's interesting, that idea of a Christian crusade, you know, where people gather together and you evangelize them, that's based on, on a kingdom mentality. It's really an, an unscriptural use of the word. Um, and that's why, you know, historically, I don't think we want to have a crusade. We can have a preaching meeting, but we're going to preach the gospel. We're not going to preach the crusade. So remember what these people were doing when they would preach a crusade. They'd just go and kill people. So let's look at a, at a history of it. Now, let me, let me back up. Let me do my basic disclaimer. Not every Muslim wants to kill people. Not every Catholic. Actually, I don't know any Catholics that want to kill people. Um, you follow what I'm saying? Okay. We're talking about the leadership and the theological basis for these faiths. And remember, we say this often, you can have your own opinions. I just don't think that's right. That's fine. But you can't have your own facts. We're going to give you some facts of things that took place in history. And then we're going to see if Mr. Cairns is right about it being a spiritual and a leadership and, and a, a spiritual and a religious movement. And if these are saintly people that are involved. Okay. The first crusade uh, was announced by Urban II, the Pope, in 1088. He was pope from 1088 to 1099. There were three popes at that time, uh, one who claimed to be the real pope, two others who claimed to be the pope, and they were anti, called anti-popes. And so he called a council at Claremont in 1095. The purpose of this council was to determine which one of these guys is the real pope. Okay? And so Urban II, he gave one of the greatest speeches in the history of, of recorded literature. And when he did this, he just motivated the people. And what he said was he challenged the Catholic Church to go and remove the infidels from Palestine and to protect the pilgrims that were traveling there. Okay? So now we got a problem. We got a problem. Is it the church's responsibility to fight wars? We've got a problem. Second problem. Do we need to be, do we as Christians need to make pilgrimages? You understand that's pagan, right? There's no piece of land. There is no relic. There, there's nothing that we are supposed to go and bow down before. We bow before the Lord Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 17. God is not uh, an idol that's worshipped with men's hands. He doesn't need your temples. He's a spirit. Amen? So we got a problem all the way from the start. So now, let's just... I've got several hours of information. Let's just go through it quickly. Um, don't worry. He promised the emperor of Constantinople that he'd liberate Palestine from the unbelievers. And then, here you go. You ready? He promised eternal life to anyone who died or fell in combat during the liberation. Okay, so now don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Okay, Wade, come here. If I'm going to have a knight beside me. Where's Tony Slade? Tony, come on up here. Now, these guys didn't want to go into battle because they couldn't find any armor to fit, but they're going to go anyway, all right? And this is the way it would be. 
I can't fight. I'm, I'm a man of God. So I'm going to find military leaders and I'm going to send them to do my work. So now let's, let's, now that's what happened in history. How many of you understand that's what happened in history? Okay. But let's put it in context. Okay, guys, uh, Wade, I need a new house. So I want you to go over to Plum Ridge and there's a, there's a house back in the back. It's, it, it's for sale right now. It's like, I don't know, $380,000 or something. Um, but I'm the man of God. God told me that it's mine. Okay. I want you to go kill the people. And be- But before they die, make sure you do this before they die because it's really important we do this legally. Have them, have them sign it over to me. Okay? But now I know you don't want to do that because you're a Christian. But I promise you that God will give you eternal life if you do that. Okay, okay go to it. All right. All right. Now, I need a new car. And I don't want just any car. I want you to go over to Columbus, and I want you to go to the Bentley store. I need a Bentley. It's $380,000, same price as my house. But as a man of God, I think that that ought to be mine. Now, I know that you're a Christian. You don't want to do that. But go and kill all those people. I know there's going to be a bunch of them there because they really like those cars. Kill them all, but make sure. We want to make sure it's legal because, you know, I really care about the rule of law. Before you kill them, make sure they sign that over to me. And if you do that, you can have eternal life. But don't worry. If they happen to kill you, it's okay because you'll go to heaven. Okay? And whatever you do to them, whatever you just feel like doing to them, that's okay too. That's all forgiven. Thanks, guys. I picked them because they're the most likely guys to do it. (laughs) Don't miss this, man. I just described exactly what happened. The Crusades, there was a component to putting a Christian flag in Jerusalem. That was certainly a component of the Crusades. But Urban II did it to consolidate his power as Pope. And he did it because... There was a a, a horrible, there had been famine and pestilence and everything going on in Europe in the Middle Ages. They needed to get the treasure from the east and bring it back to fill the coffers of the kingdoms and the church. That's what the Crusades were about. And they didn't go handing out Gideon Bibles. That's not what it was about. All right. Um, Give you an example. Walter the Penniless, that would be me. Walter the Penniless marched through Hungary, and most of his men were cut to pieces while trying to conquer Belgrade. Those who survived starved in the Belgian forests, and a few stragglers reached Constantinople. The emperor of Constantinople thought this crew was so pitiful, he let them go through into Palestine, where the Muslims put them in slave, as, and took them as slaves. All right? This is all part of the First Crusade. Peter the Hermit. I don't know where they got these names. You know, wasn't there a group in the 60s named that, you know? Um, he had four, there were 40,000 strong. They followed the path of Walter through Bulgaria, marked by the burned buildings, sacked monasteries and corpses. They reached Constantinople in pitiful condition again. And while waiting for the Pope's armies to arrive, they marauded and plundered. They were surrounded and massacred by the Turkish cavalry. But Peter the Hermit made it to the Holy Land. But here's what the Turks did. They piled their bones in a pyramid Oh, I wanted to say this. When Urban II announced the crusade, the whole crew shouted, 
God wills it. Does that sound like anything else? Allah wills it. It's amazing what's done in the name of God. Um, a 30,000 strong army took uh, Nicaea in 1097, 1098. They took Antioch. Their ranks were decimated by famine, pestilence, and desertion. They had to eat horse flesh, camel, dogs, and mice. Many of them died from drinking urine. They would probably all have defected had not a priest discovered the lance of Longinus. It was the spear that pierced the Savior's side. And they took that spear and they marched with it before them. Really? So that spear had just been conveniently hidden for a thousand years. How many of you think that a bunch of Christians went and took that spear from the centurion when he... This is what happened. This is that whole idea of talismans. It had special spiritual power. Um, Jerusalem fell in 1099. Urban, who had wanted to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, he died two weeks later, so he didn't get to do that. But I want to read something for you. This is from Philip Schaff. And um, this is what happened when they entered Jerusalem. The scenes of carnage which followed. Friday, the day of the crucifixion was chosen for the final assault. A great tower, Sir Mountain, by the way, he, didn't, he wasn't crucified on Friday. Friday, the day of the crucifixion was chosen for the final assault. A great tower surmounted by a golden cross was dragged alongside the walls and the drawbridge let down. At a critical moment... As the later story went, a soldier of brilliant aspect was seen on the Mount of Olives. And Godfrey, encouraged the besiegers, encouraging the besiegers, exclaimed, It's St. George the Martyr! Okay, so now, as they're battling, now St. George is risen from the dead and is there to help represent the crusaders, help encourage them. These guys were just great Bible scholars, weren't they? According to most of the accounts, Lee told of Tournay was the first to scale the walls. It was noticed that the moment of this crowning feat was 3 o'clock, the hour of the Savior's death. Now, this is the next. I'm not skipping anything. The scenes of carnage which followed belong to the many dark pages of Jerusalem's history and showed how in the quality of mercy the crusading night was far below the ideal of Christian perfection. The streets were choked with the bodies of the slain. The Jews were burnt in their synagogues. The greatest slaughter was in the temple enclosure, with an exaggeration which can hardly be credited, but without a twinge of regret, or a syllable of excuse, it is related that the blood of the massacred in the temple area reached the very knees and bridles of the horses. Quote, such a slaughter of the pagans had never been seen or heard of. The number, known but, the number none but God knew. Now listen, I'm not skipping anything. Penitential devotions followed easily upon the gory butchery of the sword. Headed by Godfrey... Clad in a suit of white linen, the crusaders proceeded to the church of the Holy Sepulchre and offered up prayers and thanksgivings. 
William of Tyre relates that Adhemar and others who had fallen by the way were seen showing the path to the holy places. The devotions over, the work of massacre was renewed. Neither the tears of women, nor the cries of children, nor the protests of Tancred, who for the honor of chivalry was concerned to save 300 to whom he had promised protection, none of these availed to soften the ferocity of the conquerors. As if to enhance the spectacle of pitiless barbarity, Saracen prisoners were forced to clear the streets of the dead bodies and blood to save the city from pestilence. Here's the footnote. Robert gives an awful picture of the streets filled with dismembered bodies running with gore. Uh, They wept. This is a, a quotation by Robert the monk. They wept and transported the dead bodies out of Jerusalem. Such was the piety of the crusaders. The religion of the Middle Ages combined self-denying asceticism with heartless cruelty to infidels, Jews, and heretics. They cut down with the sword, said William of Tyre. Now, William of Tyre was the archbishop, all right? They cut down with the sword everyone whom they found in Jerusalem and spared no one. Victors were covered with blood from head to foot. It was a most affecting sight which filled the heart with holy joy to see the people tread the holy places in the fervor of an excellent devotion. Folks, that's absolute wickedness. And for people in our day to make excuses for it and to say, well, they just did this to, you know, they they attacked first. We just, we just can't stand for it. All right. So Saladin took the city back. The Muslim leader took the city back in 1187. Um, but it's interesting. When Saladin took, Israel, took Jerusalem back, he didn't kill. He didn't kill any of the inhabitants. The only person that he killed was the leader that he had promised to kill. Let everybody else. He, he allowed the, the inhabitants. He allowed the, those who were uh, holding the city to leave in peace. He even gave them supplies as they left. It's interesting. Second Crusade. This is where that Bernard of Clairvaux was the recruiter. Stirred up thousands of Catholics in France and Germany, and they were defeated. Clairvaux deserted from under a tent flap, claiming that it wasn't Moses' fault the sins of the people had kept him from the Promised Land. The Third Crusade intended to take Jerusalem back from Saladin, Barbarossa, Philip Augustus of France, and Richard the Lionhearted of England. They took one city, Acre, And when they took that city in July of 1191, after a two-year siege, they were able to recover the true cross of Christ. Richard murdered 27 prisoners in cold blood. Saladin responded in kind. Jerusalem was never taken. Instead, they signed a treaty with Saladin to protect pilgrims. Then this is a pitiful thing. It's called the Children's Crusade. In 1212, a boy had a vision that he was to gather all the children in Europe and walk down to the Mediterranean Sea where God would dry it up and let the children seek for the Holy Cross. 13,000 children between 8 and 17 years reached Marseille from the Pyrenees, Brittany, and Germany. The band of children went on through the Alps to Genoa, Italy, where their number was reduced from 13,000 to 7,000. The other 8,000 had died or the other 5,000 had died in the Alps, children. 
They were deceived by two unscrupulous characters into boarding vessels going to North Africa. Two of these boats were shipwrecked on the island of San Pietro, and the five ships that made it to North Africa sold their living cargo to the Mohammedans for slaves. The Children's Crusade. Now, how many of you think that's bad? Innocent III, isn't that a great name? He called for a new crusade, and he built a, a chapel on the island of San Pietro in their memory and said, look, these children are willing to go. Why won't you? The Children's Crusade. The Fourth Crusade from 1200 to 1204. Constantinople was conquered, but they, all they did was kill the Greek Orthodox. They brought back the head of Stephen, a thorn from the crown of thorns, Mary's girdle, the Lord's towel with which he girded himself in John 13, one of John the Baptist's arms, the finger of Thomas that was thrust into Christ's side, and the head of James the just. They brought back a tear that Christ shed, and some of Christ's actual blood that was shed on the cross. See, what I'm trying to get you to understand, I'm not making any of this up. This is historical record. You, I went to a, um, I went to a, a Catholic cathedral in Ireland, and Jerome Pittman took me, and he, I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to go see the head and the bread. And that's, what, that's the way the Irish describe it. And you go in there, and there is a, the head of a man that was beheaded by the Protestants. Um, can't think of his name right now. It's his head. And it's inside this glass encased. And, and I mean, the skin's still on it and stuff. It's just all, it's all black, uh, you know, uh, deteriorated, shrunken onto a skull. And it's enclosed in glass. It's about this big, you know, the case. And there's kneeling places around it and there's marks all on this glass where people are kissing it as they pray and ask him to help them with certain things. Over in another case are his bones. You have his, his clavicle, his third and fourth vertebrae. They have them all listed. And people pray to them. Then in another chapel, there's a, a wafer that was um, blessed by the Pope. And so people go there and they pray to these things. When the Bible tells us we're not supposed to do that, folks. We're not supposed to do that. That's what they were doing. The Albigensian Crusade. Oh, I'm just running out of time. Albigensian Crusade. Innocent declared that anyone taking up the sign of the cross would be freed from all debts, given absolution from any sin committed while on crusade. And if they died, they would go immediately to heaven. They were free to kill the men, abuse the women and children, and take their land and possessions. Three to five hundred thousand crusaders assembled to exterminate the heretics. Sismondi, this is one of the historians of that age. This is a reprint of what he wrote. He said this, he quotes this, describing the number of the crusaders. We must not, however, include in this calculation the ignorant and fanatical multitude which followed each preacher armed with scythes and clubs and promised to themselves that if they were not in condition to combat the knights, they might at least be able to murder the women and children of the heretics. That was the world. That's, that's who these people were. 
in Bezier's France, I've told you the story, and that's what the Albigensian Crusade was. They, they got, it was a town of 15,000, but during this crusade, has anyone heard of St. Dominic, the Dominican friars? St. Dominic was the one that Innocent III, he was the, the friar that the Pope sent to preach the Inquisition against the Albigensians. The founder of the Roman Catholic Inquisition was Dominic. And he would go, and his job was to preach to the heretics, determine whether or not they were heretics, and if they were heretics, to take them and burn them. That's what St. Dominic's job was. Well, people were hearing about this, so 60,000 of them fled into Bezier's France, and they were killed. 60,000 of them in one day. Um, when the knights, they were able to surround the people without a fight. It, it, the, 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 the citizens of Bezier's had come out, and they were going to try and attack the people. When they saw the, they're going to try and attack, Simon de Montfort was the uh, French knight that was doing the fighting for the Pope. St. Dominic would preach, Simon de Montfort would do the killing. So what would happen was they surrounded the city. The men of Bezier's decided to attack. So they came out to attack. And when they saw the size of the force arrayed against them, they turned around and ran back into the city. But Montfort's forces were able to just follow them right into the gates of the city. So they took the city without killing anybody. The knights learning they had triumphed without fighting, inquired of the legate Arnold, the abbot of Chateau, this is the papal legate, this is the representative of the Pope, how they should distinguish the Catholics from the heretics. His reply, kill them all, the Lord will know well those who are his. 60,000 people killed. The fifth crusade, 1229, the 6th and 7th Crusade, 1248 through 1270. They never again delivered the land from Islam. Um, but what about Islam? What about Islam? Well, we, we've learned that the Crusades don't ever let anyone make an excuse for the Crusades. There's no excuse for that. Amen? I mean, let me ask you. If our military went into a city like Bezier's and did that, what would we be called? War criminals. Let's stop making excuses for it. Amen? Now, I recognize that we live in a Roman Catholic community. Roman Catholics should not make excuses for this. Amen? Has, ever, has anyone ever done something as an American that you are ashamed of? Well, we don't make excuses for it. We say it's wrong. But why did they do it? They did it because they do not believe in individual soul liberty. They believe that it is their job to establish the kingdom on this earth. And that goes back to this teaching all the way back here of Augustine, who was the father of the Roman Catholic Church. And he wrote it in his book, The City of God. That's where that whole idea comes from. Replacement theology. Establish the kingdom. Okay. So now, let's get some stuff about Islam and then we'll, we'll be done. First of all, Islam did not begin with Muhammad. In pre-Islamic Arabia, Ur of the Chaldees, remember... Uh, God told Abraham to get up out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Well, Ur of the Chaldees is where is it? That's Arabia. Well, there was a God there. It was the moon God. And of course, the Bible tells us not to worship the moon. And that's one of the th reasons that God took 
Abraham out of that area. Ultimately, it became the supreme deity of the entire Babylonian empire. Do you know what his name was? Do you know what the, the moon god's name was? Sin. Who do you worship? Sin. Anyone ever heard of Sennacherib in the Bible? That's, he was worshiping the moon god. Sennacherib had his, and his brothers. This is the brothers of the, of the supreme deity. That sin multiplies his brothers. That's, the, that's what his name means, Sennacherib. Sin was elevated to the top of the Babylonian pantheon by Nabonidus in an effort to make the Babylonian religion more acceptable to subjects like the Arabians and Armenians. See, the Arabians, were, were they, they loved to worship this moon god, but they weren't going to worship Marduk and the other Babylonian idols. And so they just did a little power shift and the moon god became the leader. Sin means controller of the night. He had the crescent moon as its emblem and the lunar-based calendar, which then became the primary religious symbols of Islam. What's the symbol for Islam? Crescent moon. Same thing. Same thing. See, what you've got to understand is Muhammad did not invent his religion. He just built upon what was already there. Okay, he turned it from this 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 pantheistic, this multiple God system to a monotheistic, a one God system. And his God was Allah. But Allah is this moon God. Mecca. Became the center of all pagan religions. Do you know what the moon God's name was in Mecca? Allah. That was the moon God before Muhammad. Uh, The Lord of the Kaaba, the cube. That's the center of pagan worship, ruling over 360 idols. So because people had to do a pilgrimage, this is a part of this ancient religion. It was a Sabian religion, pre-Muhammad. They would have to make pilgrimages to Mecca to bow down to this idol. All of these things were carried through in Islam, but they were just part of this Sabian religion. They were an astral religion, worshiping the heavenly bodies. The moon was viewed as the male deity, the sun the female deity. They had lunar calendars, fasting from crescent moon to crescent moon. That's what they would do. They would fast from crescent moon to crescent moon. Do you know what that's called now? Ramadan. It all predated Muhammad. Um, Pilgrimages. um, Let me just skip through some of this stuff. All right. Now, I want to show you something. It is in our culture, it's it's inappropriate to talk about the kind of man that Muhammad was. Muhammad had a seven-year-old wife. I want you to think about that. He had 20-some wives, but one of them was a seven-year-old girl. That kind of behavior is common in Yemen, in Afghanistan. But when you speak about those things, the media doesn't want you to do that. The pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, just recently experienced this. I want you to watch this video. In just a few moments, we're going to uh, continue our wonderful worship. But I'm going to do something uh, this morning that I don't often do in a worship service. And I'm going to address uh, the congregation as well as the tens of thousands who are listening to this broadcast on radio and television about an important matter. Uh, Some of you this morning may have read Steve Lowe's column in the Dallas Morning News uh, regarding my comments about Islam uh, several weeks ago. And in his column, Steve Lowe accused me of being, and I quote, uninformed, unchristian, and un-American, end of quote. 
Now, the good news is Steve did not accuse me of beating my wife. Um, not yet anyway. Who knows what is yet to come? You know, whether I am unchristian or un-American is something you and readers have to decide for yourself. But uninformed, I am not. I want you to know as a congregation, and by the way, you have a right to know whether your pastor knows what he's talking about when he stands behind this pulpit. You have every right to know. Am I just speaking off the cuff? Am I uh, shooting from the hip? Or am I speaking facts? I take this ministry very, very seriously. And I take what I say behind this pulpit very, very seriously. And I make sure I'm speaking from the facts when I speak to you every Sunday. And what I said about Islam two weeks ago during a Sunday night service was based on facts. Islam does incite violence around the world. Uh, just yesterday, just yesterday, there was a story all over the news about an Australian Muslim cleric who ordered the beheading of a Dutch politician because this Dutch politician said Islam is a violent religion. Is that not a little bit ironic? <laughs> How dare you say our religion is violent? We're going to behead you for saying such a thing. It does incite violence. It is used to oppress women around the world. Look at the women living under Sharia law around the world. But the comment that Steve Blow zeroed in on was my assertion that Islam is being used to support uh, relationships, marriage to children. And uh, he uh, quoted a Florida psychiatrist who said why if such a thing were going on, uh, we would know about it. Medical authorities in our country and legal authorities. Well, Steve Blow knows from what I said and from my subsequent conversations with him, I was not talking about this country. I made it clear on that Sunday night and later to Steve Blow that I was talking about what is going on around the world. We have laws in our country that prohibit marriage to children. But in Muslim nations around the world, there are men who use Mohammed's relationship with that nine-year-old girl as a justification for taking child brides. I thought it was interesting in Blow's uh, column this morning, he quoted an SMU theology professor. And even that SMU theology professor did not deny that Mohammed had a relationship with a nine-year-old girl. That's a matter of historical record. In 624 A.D., Mohammed, who was 54 years old, took a nine-year-old girl as his bride. Let me pause here and ask you, can you imagine the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, having relations with a nine-year-old girl? Can you fathom such a thing? Jesus said, for a man to harm a child, it would be better that a millstone be placed around his neck and he be cast into the depths of the sea. But that is what Mohammed did. And few, including that professor, deny that that happened. But what about the claim, Pastor, that that is leading to other Muslim men around the world to do the same thing? Steve said in his column this morning, he asked me for sources. And all I could say to him was that I read it in a few references. 
I'll admit I was dumbfounded when he asked for the sources. I thought that was widespread knowledge of what is happening in third world Muslim countries by some men. But what Steve Blow failed to report in his column this morning was that later I did send him the evidence for that claim. And among the evidence I sent to him was an article from CBS News. Now, CBS News is hardly a bastion of conservatism. But uh, let me just read from this column that I sent, this article to Steve Blow. The headline is, Yemeni Child Bride Hailed as Hero. In Afghanistan, a bride at age three. Now, here's the story from the Associated Press on cbsnews.com. A 12-year-old Yemeni child bride died after struggling for three days in labor to give birth, a local human rights organization said. Child marriages are widespread in Yemen, the Arab world's poorest country, where tribal customs dominate society. More than a quarter of the country's females marry before age 15, according to a recent report. The issue of child brides vaulted into the headlines here two years ago when an eight-year-old Yemeni girl went by herself to a courtroom and demanded a judge dissolve her marriage to a man in his 30s. She eventually won a divorce, and legislators began looking at ways to curb this practice. In February, Parliament passed a law setting the minimum marriage age at 17, but now get this, some lawmakers are trying to kill that measure, calling it, quote, un-Islamic, end of quote. Now, Steve Blow and others would like to disassociate the religion of Islam from the practice of marriage to underage children. But they're going to have a hard time doing that when you have a group of Muslim lawmakers themselves saying, we want no restriction on relationships, marriages, to children, because to place those restrictions on marriages to children goes against our faith. It is un-Islamic. Now, I made it clear when I communicated with Steve, just as I have made it clear all this week in the media, I do not believe that most Muslims are terrorists. I don't believe that most Muslims oppress women. I don't believe that most Muslims support underage marriage. But what I do say is there is something in the religion of Islam itself that incites violence around the world, that causes the oppression of women, that is used by some to legitimize marriage to children. But the worst thing about Islam is that it is a deception that leads people from the true God to an eternity in hell. And for that reason, I stand by my statement from two weeks ago that Islam is a false religion built upon a false book that is written by a false prophet. Now, I do not want anyone in the sanctuary or anyone listening to that applause to confuse that applause for hatred for Muslims. I also said to Steve Blow, which he chose not to put in his column this morning, that at First Baptist Church Dallas, we do not hate Muslims. I told him, again, he did, chose not to put this in his column, that I have a very good friend here in Dallas who is a Muslim.
We do not hate Muslims. We want Muslims to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is our goal here. That's what we want to see happen. But our love for Muslims cannot keep us from speaking the truth about Islam. In fact, it is our love for Muslims that demands we speak the truth about Islam. Now, this morning, we're going to hear the tremendous truth about Jesus Christ. So when we understand who Muhammad was and what that faith does to people, we've got to understand this is a wicked, wicked system. And any system, any system that, it, that distorts the word of God and makes it say something that it doesn't is a false religion and a wicked religion. And we must speak out against it. Not as the preacher said, not in hatred toward those people. But if they don't hear the gospel from us, they're not going to hear it at their church. They're not going to hear it in their madrasa. They're not going to hear it in their mosque. They're not going to get it. It's up to us to speak the truth. What about modern terrorism? Osama bin Laden, 1998, in an Arabic newspaper, he had a text. It's a declaration of World Islamic Front for Jihad against Jews and Crusaders. And in it, he calls for the killing of all Americans. He says, this is his fatwa, laying down that to kill Americans and their allies, both civilly and militarily, is an individual duty of every Muslim who is able in any country where this is possible. Until the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem and the Haram Mosque in Mecca are freed from their grip and until their armies, shattered and broken-winged, depart from the lands of Islam, incapable of threatening any Muslim. The basis for this type of, of activity was not found in ancient Islam. Ancient Islam was a conquering military power. That's what they would do. But this whole idea of terrorism, the idea, it goes back to the assassins. It's interesting, the two words that come from religion that we're familiar with, thug, a thug was a, an Indian Hindu assassin. And the word assassin were Muslim uh, killers who would, they were, the assassin comes from hashish takers. And they were a cult within Islam and they would kill Islamic leaders who were not practicing the way that they believed they needed to. But what is different from these assassins, they, they existed from the 1100s to the 1300s, is they would only kill one way, with a dagger up close. Now, they didn't necessarily intend to survive it, but they never committed suicide. Why? Because, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but the prophet Muhammad himself said that if you kill, if you kill yourself by the sword, you will be killed in hell by the sword uh, forever. If you take poison, you will walk around taking poison in hell forever. If you jump off a, a cliff, you will fall in hell forever. Islam condemns suicide. The idea of the suicide bomber doesn't go back to those assassins. They never killed themselves, although they expected to be killed in battle. Now, they weren't good men, but they are not the basis for this modern, modern suicide killing. Um, so they were suppressed in the 1300s. They came into being again, in, that was in uh, uh, Iran, they came into existence again in Turkey. Well, they were suppressed in Turkey. They were trying to kill the sultan. Well, they were suppressed, and they came, they came into existence again in Iran between 1948 and 1953. They were put down. And now they came up in 1964 
That same term was used for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. You've got to understand how wicked this organization is. We think of them now, they're presented as just representing those poor Palestinian people. No, they were killers. And it was not about Israel. It was about killing the Jews. That's what it was about. Um, they demonstrated this hatred. First of all, um, by, in 1973, three airplanes were hijacked. They took them to Amman. 1972, Israeli athletes were murdered in Munich Olympics. In 1973, the Saudi embassy in Khartoum was seized and two Americans were killed. But these suicide missions had never been heard of. Now, you've got to understand something. This modern terrorism, this modern terrorism, it does not represent all of Islam. But have you seen all of Islam rising up against it? No. No. Because you have a religion that believes in forced conversions. Just like the Crusades were practicing forced conversions. Just like the Protestants in Zurich, Switzerland were practicing forced conversions. Just like Martin Luther practiced in Germany, forced conversions. All of those people, they trace the roots of that idea back to Augustine and his position, these two lines of church history. Folks, you've got to understand, when somebody changes the Word of God, it has lasting effects. Of the 57 member states of the organization of the Islamic Conference, only one, the Turkish Republic, has operated democratic institutions over a long period of time and despite difficult and ongoing problems, has made progress in establishing a liberal economy and free society. Only one somewhat democratic institution in any of the Muslim nations. See, folks, our liberty is based on the concept of individual soul liberty. When people go against the Word of God, it has eternal results. We must remember the history of modern terrorism. The history of modern terrorism. The, in, in Islamic history, from the 700s on, there's almost no mention of the Crusades using that term. They were just military incursions. They took, the, they took it as people fighting over land, which is what battles are always about, right? It wasn't until the modern era of Islamic history, 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte landed in Egypt, conquered Egypt with a small group of men. Well, that was really infuriating to the, to the Muslims. They said, how could this one guy with a small army do this? Well, he was run out. But again, embarrassing to Islam, he wasn't run out by but, uh, the Turks, or the Egyptians. He was run out by Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson. They said, so got have people from England with a, with a woman as king, as queen. They, they, woman as king would be bad. But with a woman as queen, runs them out, and they, they couldn't stand it. That began the modern movement in Europe or in, in the Middle East. And that's when they started talking about the Crusades. And when... Islamic terrorists talk about the horror of the Crusades. They're right. Now, they're not right in their response to it. They're not right in using it as an excuse to kill somebody else. Amen? 
But let us never make excuses for taking the name of Christ and butchering people. Persecution is wrong in any sense. Why? Because we believe in individual soul liberty that's been communicated in the Scriptures. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for...